The Incredible Hulk was one of the earliest comic series I ever remember reading. Spurred on by the then-current TV series starring Bill Bixby as Dr. Banner and Lou Ferrigno as his green-skinned alter ego, I was bought a number of Hulk annuals by my grandparents. These volumes, all from the late 70s, featured in one edition, Early Tales of the Hulk by Stan Lee, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, and in the other, A Refuge Divided, which I would later learn was from an early Hulk annual in the United States. Neither edition featured stories that were anything like those on the telly, and this was explained away by my granddad telling me, the films are never like the books, they're normally not as good. This was, believe it or not, lovely listener, enough of an explanation for my then five-year-old brain to wrap itself around. The TV shows weren't like the books. Simple. And this allowed me to enjoy the adventures of the differently named Dr. David Banner on television, while still reading and loving the adventures of Dr. Bruce Banner on the printed page. The advice stood me in good stead. I wasn't bothered that Jarrell and Lara wore white robes on film, but green and red in the comics because the books aren't like the film. I wasn't really concerned that the TV Spider-Man didn't really fight super-powered bad guys because, say it with me, the books aren't like the film. I don't think it's any surprise that the films have gotten better as they've adhered to the books more closely, but it's not a deal-breaker for me if certain elements are changed from one medium to the other. And, with the Hulk, elements had to be changed. Refined. Allowed to breathe and develop. Of all the early Marvel comics, the Hulk is, ironically, easily the most schizophrenic. The Incredible Hulk issue 1, cover dated May 1962, boasts an amazing cover, one of the most iconic of the Silver Age of comics. A man, who we will come to know as Dr. Robert Bruce Banner, stands on the cover morphing into a large grey, or green, creature, similar in looks to Boris Karloff's interpretation of the Frankenstein monster. He is flanked by military personnel, an attractive young lady, and a teenage boy. The cover is perfectly evocative of the Universal monster movies of the 40s and the 1950s science fiction tales to which the strip owes its debt, particularly The Amazing Colossal Man from 1957. It blends those two different movie genres into one to create something wholly unique. The military man would later be revealed to be General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross, the attractive young lady, his daughter Betty, and the teenage lad Rick Jones. The B-movies, from which the Hulk drew its inspiration, all had brainy scientist types, dames, plucky teenagers and blustering military men, as well as science gone wrong and misunderstood monsters. Of course, Stan Lee being Stan Lee, there were numerous literary allusions too, in this case, to The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, first published in 1886. Artist Jack Kirby brings all the elements Lee has blended together very well on this cover, delivering an intriguing and enticing image. The cover copy also plays up the horror feel of the story. Fantasy as you like it, it exclaims. The strangest man of all time, another caption yells. Is he man or monster? Or is he both? It asks. Given that the other blurb on the cover have told us that this is the strangest man of all, I suspect we've been provided with the answer. 
one particular thing of note about this cover. Depending on where you first read it, the hue of the Hulk's skin is different. If you read this as it originally came out, then, for this first issue at least, the Hulk was grey. If you read this in many of the reprints throughout the 70s, such as the British annuals I mentioned earlier, or the Pocket Books paperback novel version published in 1978, then the Hulk had the more traditional greenish tinge to the skin. This was due to Lee seeing the grey version upon publication and thinking it looked like mud. The story goes that a printer allegedly told Lee he could give you a pretty good green, and that's how the change came about. Forevermore afterwards, the Hulk was green, with his first appearance altered in reprints to support this decision. Later in the comics run, the Grey Hulk was established as being part of the story all along, despite only a handful of people being even aware of it from its original printing. Subsequent reprints, such as the Omnibus and the Masterworks editions, reverted to the original colour schemes. Interestingly, in the letters page for issue 4, Stan comments that issue 1's colouring of the Hulk was a mistake, and he should have been green, and will be, from now on. I wonder why the people who obsessed over the grey-green thing never got their knickers bunched up over the fact that Banner is clearly a blonde on the cover. The comic story kicks off with a beautiful image of the Hulk by Jack Kirby. Comparing the images from the Omnibus to the Pocketbook, the Pocketbook wins hands down. The Omnibus has recreated the flatter, duller colouring of the original printing, whereas the Pocketbook has recoloured the pages so they look more vibrant. It also has to be said that Stan was right. The Hulk does look like mud in the original. The Pocketbook version, recoloured to be green, looks so much better. The first page of the story proper takes place in a bunker in the middle of the desert. Inside, Dr. Bruce Banner and his team run final tests on the G-Bomb. It should team up with G-Man, G-Woman and the dog G-Spot. Banner is being badgered by his assistant Igor that it's all dangerous for Banner to keep his formulas to himself. All that secrecy does him no good. If something were to happen to Banner, all that work would be lost. This conversation is interrupted by General Ross, who believes Banner is taking far too long. Bomb is a bomb! He blusters, before calling Banner a milksop and telling his daughter to butt out when she tries to intervene by telling her that this is man talk. Sexism aside, one does have to wonder why Betty's here at all. She's not referred to as Banner's girlfriend in this telling of the story, and she seems to serve no purpose on the base. This page still has a lot of detail in it, though. Igor raises a good point, but in this, Banner is like a lot of other Marvel scientists, a man whose severe trust issues get in the way of his job. But he also lets his own ego and overconfidence get in the way as well. Marvel characters weren't bastions of goodness, they were flawed human beings. Banner's overcautious checking of the conditions for the Gamma Bomb separates him from other Marvel scientists, though, in that he is at least checking and double-checking his figures, nor is he testing the device on himself. The military presence is interesting, and this is clearly being funded and ran by the military, although why a man as unhinged as Ross would get this gig is unclear. He's far too stressed for this work and a complete mismatch with Banner, who you would think he'd show more respect given he created the damn thing. Igor is, of course, a bad guy, because his name is Igor. Talk about signposting it. With the final countdown approaching, our players take their positions. Igor once again points out that in case of an accident, Banner's formulas need to be entrusted to someone else, damn it! He even threatens to punch Banner to learn the secrets. 
Banner admonishes Igor, telling him that he despises men who think with their fists. This is a fascinating line. Banner is a pacifist, or at least a man who abhors violence. Why then does a man like this throw in with the military and create a weapon of unimaginable power? Lee is obviously drawing parallels with J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. Banner is doing this because he is, first and foremost, a scientist, and as such he has to know if his theories are sound. This was also the early 1960s, and the space race was still undecided, with enemies everywhere. Banner may feel that the end fully justifies the means, although, as with most Marvel scientists and with Oppenheimer himself, he may later regret his actions. As the timer drops inexorably towards the zero moment, Banner spots a hot rod car on the testing ground. How this car managed to get by General Ross's top-notch security is never speculated upon, but Banner tells Igor to halt the countdown while he gets the kid out of the firing line. The kid is Rick Jones, who has snuck past the guards on a bet. Banner yells at the kid to get the fuck out of the way and hurls him into a bomb shelter, but as he prepares to dive in himself, the gamma bomb explodes. The next caption is chilling, dear listener. An ear-splitting scream fills the air, and Banner is still screaming hours later. That's some proper horror shit right there. There's also a lot to unpick here. Lee and Kirby did a masterful job with the pacing. Banner tells Igor to stop the clock, which of course he doesn't. Banner is no martyr. Yes, he runs out to save Jones, but he didn't intend for this to happen. It was also no accident, rather the deliberate act of a petty and jealous man who's also a spy. Here we see the deliberate difference between this strip and Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four. What happened to the FF happened because Reed Richards rushed the flight into space without fully checking all the variables. What happened to Peter Parker was an accident, pure and simple. Banner did everything right. He refused to test the bomb until it was ready. He refused to disclose the data until he was sure it was right. The testing was all in a controlled environment and it still all went horribly wrong. Banner has every right to be bitter about this, arguably more so than his opposite number in the Fantastic Four, The Thing. In that case, The Thing agreed to go with Reed, whereas here, Banner had no control over anything that happened. You can argue blame. If Rick Jones hadn't took that bet, if Igor had stopped the countdown, if Ross wasn't pushing at him. But this is all out of Banner's sphere of influence, and this is why the story of the Hulk is ultimately a tragic one. Kirby's art is also to be praised. Yes, it's crude by today's standards and even by Kirby's own development, but the pacing is exemplary. Banner races out to get Rick, pulling him out of the car, hurling him into the bunker as we cut back to the finger pressing the button and then the three panels of Banner being engulfed in the explosion, cutting to Banner's face hours later still screaming. This is body horror comics of the finest order. Banner awakens in the bunker, where a doctor looks over him with concern. Rick brought him back, and both men have been kept alive under surveillance to monitor their conditions. Banner is a ball of nervous energy, fearing the worst. No one can absorb that much gamma radiation to no ill effect. 
As night falls, Banner starts to feel tense as the Geiger counter in the room begins to go wild. Banner suddenly starts to grow in size. His musculature becomes extended, his face more Neanderthal-like. When the transformation is over, Banner stands a good head taller than he was, more brute-like and possessing of incredible strength. The transformation is more shocking for how matter-of-fact it is. Banner bursts out of his clothes, but he isn't the rampaging seven-foot monster we know and love. He's stockier, more brutish, and perfectly capable of speech that isn't that of a two-year-old. The feats of strength are all relatable. He smashes a wall down to break free of what he sees as captivity and then destroys a jeep. The jeep-destroying panel is the best, as the creature, not yet named, simply puts his shoulder into it as it drives at him, sending the occupants flying. He then walks off into the night with Rick Jones in pursuit. What's notable about this is this initial six-page story gives no indication that Banner will be back. There is a real possibility that Banner will be trapped like this, although that makes him more like a carbon copy of the Thing than Dr. Jekyll. The Hulk is a brute. There's no heroic compunction behind him. He smashes the wall, destroys the jeep, and then leaves. He's no interest in explaining his actions and bats Rick out of the way with nary a second thought. Also, the transformation isn't triggered by anger or outrage, but seems to be triggered by stress. It's mentioned that night has fallen, but unlike later in the series, there is no direct correlation made between that and the transformation. In contrast to the later characterizations of the Hulk, here we see the creature nurse his shoulder after smashing the jeep again, a far cry from what the character would become, and arguably more interesting as a result. What's also remarkable here is that the Hulk is only in just over a page and a quarter of this six-page story, but the build-up was so riveting that one couldn't help but read along to find out what was happening. Even today, I was impressed by how much meat there was to this simple little story. I'm not here to dump on modern creators. I enjoy a lot of modern books, but I'm hard-pressed to think of a writer-artist team that could do so much with so little that are currently working in today's marketplace. Also remarkable is that, like the Fantastic Four, this isn't a superhero comic at all. The Fantastic Four was a monster book. This is pure horror. There's nothing here that can be considered part of the superhero genre. All told, this is a remarkable and much underrated origin story. It may not have the twist in the tale of the Spider-Man origin, but it's more focused and has more to chew on than the FF. This has a lot of notable character beats to go along with the Reds Under the Bed theme and lots of subtle characterisation. The art services the story with occasional moments of sublime brilliance and it's a tight opening with no flab. Part 2 is called The Hulk Strikes and has another excellent splash page from Kirby, this time of the Hulk hiding behind various rocky outcroppings as the military police pursue him. Again, I have to prefer the recoloured version in the 1978 pocketbook. The Grey Hulk doesn't look as menacing or as interesting. In fact, he looks like a corpse. The military police named the creature the Hulk, a name that seems to catch on really quickly, as people who aren't even near them at the time start calling the creature that as well. The military's bemusement over what is in the midst is wonderfully handled by Lee and Kirby. These men are facing something the likes of which has never been seen before, and it's interesting to look back at this nascent Marvel universe. As the company grew and became more successful, it became harder and harder to truly capture the horror and wonder of the new breed of creatures that walked amongst us. 
Imagine, if you will, the sheer joy of seeing a Spider-Man swinging above your head, the horror of seeing the Hulk smash up a city block, or the terror of bumping into the Thing. This is captured well in this story, before it would come all too commonplace. The Hulk manages to direct himself to Banner's military apartment to try and work on a formula. Banner seems to be in some kind of control, albeit in a limited manner, although the Hulk is quite a different personality. Igor is already at Banner's apartment, ransacking the place, searching for Banner's gamma formula. Startled by the creature, he fires a 38 slug into its shoulder, but the creature, whilst hurt, doesn't slow down. He crushes Igor's gun in one hand and really seems like he's prepared to kill Igor, hurling him across the room and into Banner's experiments and scientific equipment. Igor accuses the creature of not being human and, for the first time, we learn that the Hulk's opinion of humanity is pretty low. To be fair, this is largely justifiable. Since appearing, the Hulk has had a jet driven at him and was in captivity for reasons unknown. To him, anyway. Then he was shot. It begs the question just what the Hulk thinks he is, if not a human. Playing devil's advocate, though, the military didn't really attack him here, just tried to hold him. It was Igor that shot him, and Igor's the bad guy. Igor, at this point, has dropped all the pretense, and is an out-and-out moustache-twirling bad guy of the communist variety. I can't help but think he's worked very hard to infiltrate an American base to this level, and his returning to Banner's home to locate the formula would have been something he hoped he could get away with, rather than risking his cover so recklessly. With the military being preoccupied by the Hulk, perhaps Igor saw this as a perfect opportunity to do some ransacking. The report from the Gamma Bomb is on Banner's desk, taped underneath a light, and Rick procures it for the MPs. The Hulk sees a picture of Banner on the desk. Why Bruce has a picture of himself on his own desk is a mystery for the ages. The Hulk is enraged at seeing the image of a soft, weak and petty human and tosses Rick away. We see the Hulk here is not the leave-Hulk-alone creature of later stories, but actually believes his power would make the world his. With this chilling thought in mind, the Hulk turns on Rick as being the only one who knows who I really am. Do we think the Hulk would have killed Rick here? It certainly seems so, especially after his rage at Igor and his dismissal of the Banner identity. Marvel Comics had no issues with portraying the lead characters as not particularly heroic, but this is a far cry even from anti-hero. The Hulk of this story is a brutal thug and potential murderer and conqueror. Numerous writers over the years would return to this incarnation of the Hulk as perhaps being more easy to create stories around than the more familiar childlike Hulk of the 70s, and perhaps they're right. Would the childish Hulk have worked in Peter David's acclaimed run, or have fitted in Greg Pak's Planet Hulk storyline? Lee is clearly taking his cues from the monster serials and movies where the creature is sympathetic, but by no means the hero of the piece. Before the Hulk can carry through on his threat to kill Rick, the sun rises and triggers his transformation back into Banner. He mistakenly believes the nightmare is over, but alas, as the caption box informs us, it may never be over again. This time, there is a direct correlation with the arrival of Daylight and the transformation from the Hulk back into Banner, and this will be the status quo for ooh, at least two issues. Part 3 is entitled The Search for the Hulk. The military police storm Banner's apartment, having tracked the Hulk this way. Again, there are some inconsistencies in the writing. Banner and Rick are oblivious to the name Hulk, but Igor is fully aware of it. 
Perhaps Igor heard it before he left to rob Banner's apartment. Banner is still nursing a shoulder wound from being shot by Igor, but he isn't bleeding, nor is there a bullet, despite Igor saying back on page 9 that he put a slug in the shoulder. The MPs are understandably cautious around Banner, but after finding Igor mumbling about the Hulk and the eyewitness accounts of the creature, they leave him be, but take his gamma research. They don't ask any questions about how he and Rick got there, since as far as they were aware, they disappeared after the Hulk destroyed the cell they were in. General Ross isn't leading the search, but Betty Ross is present, and she tries to talk to Banner, feeling there is something he isn't telling her. Lee gets a lot of flack from certain quarters, specifically the Jack Kirby Steve Ditko did everything and Lee was a hack crowd, but Lee's characterisation is very well done here. Betty and Bruce have a very repressed relationship with an underlining sexual tension not normally associated with comic books of this era. Rick is jealous of Betty's relationship with Banner, turned off by the will-they-won't-they nature of the book, and more interested in what being the Hulk was like. Tellingly, it's Rick that bandages Banner up, not Betty. Banner still calls Betty Miss Ross, only calling her Betty for the first time here, implying this relationship has been a very slow burn for the two of them. Stan likes the name Betty and derivatives of same. Over in Spider-Man, there was a Betty Brandt and a Liz Allen. It's quite interesting, as usual in a fictional story, nobody has the same first name to avoid confusion. How many other people named Peter as Peter Parker met? So to have three people named Elizabeth was interesting. Page 14 ends on a down note. Banner sinks into his armchair, wondering if Nightfall will again bring about the transformation. Banner's description of the creature is interesting. A brutal, bestial mockery of a human. A creature that fears nothing, despises reason, and worships power. Jack Kirby's art in these last three panels sees Banner's face slowly covered by a dark shadow, a wonderfully subtle allusion to his problems. There are also a number of tonal similarities with the first half of this story and the TV series from the 70s. It's why I think the TV show is so well-liked, despite the changes from the comics. The unrequited relationship between Betty and Banner in the comics foreshadows the similarly unrequited love between Banner and Elena Marks in the pilot movie written by Kenneth Johnson. The first transformation happening at night is also oddly parallel to the comic, and Banner's loathing of what happens to him is straight out of the Bill Bixby playbook. The relentless pursuit of the creature on the page by the military on screen by investigative reporter Jack McGee is also echoed and the overall feel of a universal horror movie permeates every moment of the pilot and the first half of this comic. What has happened to Banner is not a joyous cause for celebration or a heroic call to arms. It's a tragic event that ruins his life. The second half of the story, although chapter 4 of the comic, takes a turn into 50s paranoic science fiction as Igor manages to send a communication beyond the Iron Curtain thanks to a microtransmitter hidden in his thumbnail. The communique is to the Gargoyle, a Noel Gallagher monobrowed Mekonalite man-baby who all Russians are afraid of, who quickly determines that the Hulk is almost as powerful as I, the Gargoyle. The Gargoyle refers to himself in the third person quite a lot. This also seems to be a rather spurious claim. The gargoyle is very much the precursor to the leader, in that he has an elongated head to emphasise his power, his hyperintelligence. Nowhere in this story do we learn that this is not the case, nor do we learn that the gargoyle is anything above an average man's strength. Rather stupidly, for one so smart, the gargoyle launches himself from a Russian submarine in an experimental man-carrying missile. 
This missile makes it all the way to the USA, and after it's attacked by the US's defences, the gargoyle manages to escape unscathed following a crash landing. This landing just happens to be right near where the Hulk is, because, rather fortuitously, night has fallen. The Hulk is as bored of Rick as the readers are, and they would like nothing better to throw him off a cliff. The Hulk suddenly gets strange urges as they pass the house of Betty Ross. Betty has been talking to General Ross, who tells her that she needs some fresh air and to bugger off for a walk. Outside, she encounters the Hulk. These are the far more interesting moments for me. How the Hulk is interpreting Banner's world and emotions, his lack of tolerance with Rick, his finding his own path. These are the better parts of the story. The Hulk is attracted to Betty because Banner is attracted to Betty. But his very presence causes her to faint dead away. Like all weak, helpless creatures, says the Hulk. I think an entire piece could be written about the treatment of women in this story. Well, I say women. Woman. General Ross hears the kerfuffle and runs outside, where he sees Betty passed out on the floor. When she tells him what happened, he vows to pursue the creature to the ends of the earth. In an amazing misstep, Ross and the Hulk never actually meet in this issue, but the seeds are being planted for the ongoing series. Into all this heavy drama, Stan keeps inserting this rather tired and uninteresting gargoyle story. After drugging the Hulk with a pellet gun, the gargoyle stuffs the creature onto a boat, and then into a plane, and they zoom back to communist soil. The Hulk reverts back to Banner, and this causes the gargoyle to lose his shit. Banner is the Hulk? Why would he do that? The gargoyle longs to be human and not a monster. He wasn't always like this. He was experimented on by his superiors, and he's now the fear-mongering, rather narcissistic, petulant man-baby you see before you. He longs to be liked, to be loved, to be human again. Of course, Dr. Banner can fix the gargoyle because he is a very smart man, and the now-human gargoyle helps Rick and Banner escape. Oh yeah, the gargoyle brought Rick along for... no reason that I can see. The gargoyle commits suicide by destroying the base as Banner and Rick fly back to the States. As with the Fantastic Four before it and Spider-Man afterwards, we can clearly see not much thought has been put into the Hulk beyond his origin. As with both those strips, Stan quickly fell into the reds under the bed trope that horribly dates these stories now, and it was only a few issues down the line with the FF and Spider-Man that, with the incredible talents of Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, he was able to bring the characters and concepts into focus. There are elements of greatness here. Early on in the strip, Stan focuses a lot on characterisation, and Banner's distraught nature is well played, although not quite enough is done with it. A second half that centred more around Banner and what happened to him would probably have been better and elevated this to a classic Marvel origin. As it is, the human angle grinds to a halt whenever the gargoyle shows up. It's a nice touch that Banner is willing to help the enemy, though. Banner's humanistic side shows through, and to him this is just another human being in pain. The side that he's fighting on is irrelevant. The gargoyle then sacrificing himself to allow Banner and Rick time to escape also speaks of the humanist angle Stan dropped into all of his comics, but more focus on our main protagonists and less on the communist plot wouldn't have gone amiss. The same problem follows through to issue 2, The Terror of the Toadmen. Despite featuring some magnificent art courtesy of Jack Kirby and Inca Steve Ditko, this story once again squanders the Hulk to focus on a rather silly alien invasion story. The A-plot is a bit daft, revolving around the Toadmen's desire to conquer Earth, despite seemingly knowing nothing about it. They focus on locating the greatest scientific mind on Earth, on Earth, to help them learn about our military capabilities and weaponry, which leads to Banner being accused of being a traitor by General Ross. 
One of the main things we learn from Stan Lee from reading lots of issues of the Fantastic Four is that Stan has only a vague understanding of how magnetism works, believing them to work on human skin. And so the Toadmen's plot to magnetically fuse all humans to the Earth seems a little bit dumb. The Havoc wrought is effectively rendered, thanks to the aforementioned art team, but it's all a wasted opportunity, Hulk-wise. He doesn't even really get to fight any Toadmen, and it's Banner's scientific genius that saves the day. One has to wonder how Banner stayed anonymous after this. Surely the President and the press would have wanted to know who it was that had saved the Earth, especially given that this was a full-on invasion, rather than a secretive takeover. Interestingly, the Toad Men believe Banner to be the greatest scientific mind on the planet, which reveals why Reed Richards hates Banner. By far the more interesting aspect of the issue is the B-plot, which is really the problem. Banner and the Hulk shouldn't be the B-plot in their own book. Banner and Rick have located a cave where they hope to entomb the Hulk every night for the safety of the populace. This seems like a good move, as the opening of this issue has the Hulk rampaging through a small town, where he seems reasonably well known. From a character development standpoint, Betty openly acknowledges her feelings for Banner. There's also an interesting moment where the Hulk decides he will use the Toadmen's technology to conquer Earth himself. And this is the hero of the book. As I've said, the art saves this issue. From its magnificent opening shot of the Hulk rising from the swamps to its depiction of the creature crushing all the town under his oppressive might, one can only ponder what a lengthy collaboration between Ditko and Kirby would have been like. According to the cover to issue 3, the Hulk can now fly. Whereas the green-grey thing was accepted, this, like Bruce Banner's blonde her on the cover to issue 1, was slowly forgotten about. This issue has three stories, one of which is a full three-page retellings of the Hulk's origin from only two issues ago. This time, the origin is told from Rick's point of view, and as such, features none of the depth of the original. It basically boils down to a stupid kid doesn't think his actions through and causes havoc. There's none of the background details about the Gamma Bomb or Igor because Rick doesn't know any of that. There is an interesting angle to be explored here about actions having consequences, and it goes some way to explaining Rick's devotion to Banner in that he feels indescribable guilt over what happened, but it's not really explored all that well. The main story has some interesting ideas in it, and one really bad idea. General Ross kidnaps Rick and tells him they will use force if necessary to get him to tell them where the Hulk is. Rick tells him to stick it, but Ross appeals to Rick's patriotism by telling him that there is an experimental rocket ship they want to test, and only the Hulk has the necessary strength to withstand the G-forces. Rick falls for this and goes to retrieve the Hulk from his underground lockup. Oddly, Ross and his men don't follow Rick to find out where this is. The Hulk is understandably annoyed at Rick and follows him to presumably put him out of our misery. Rick lures the Hulk into the rocket ship and is launched into space. This is when Ross reveals that it was all a ruse and the Hulk has been blasted into space forever. Despite this rather clumsy setup, are we really to believe Ross wouldn't lie to Rick and follow him to the Hulk's cave? This is a guy who's prepared to torture a teenager to locate the Hulk. Lying seems perfectly acceptable. This is still an interesting idea for a story, though. Getting rid of the Hulk into space would be pretty logical. Well, comic book logical anyway. And given that Ross seems to have unlimited resources at his disposal, it's plausible that he would try this. It also provided the inspiration for the Planet Hulk story arc many years later. The rocket zooms spaceward towards the sun, which transforms the Hulk back into Banner. He is then subject to yet another dose of gamma radiation. Back on Earth, Rick has learned of the Ross ruse and decides to intervene. He starts fooling around with the missile control panel because every single military base in the world lets teenage boys just wander around unguarded. 
I also have a hard time believing a Rick Jones who can barely tie up his own shoes would know how to use the missile guidance panel, but apparently there's a lever labelled Back to Earth which Rick tugs upon. This gives Rick a massive electric shock, which we are promised will link the Hulk and Rick Jones more closely than ever before, and then the missile comes crashing back down to Earth. None of the military stationed here seem to notice this at all. Rick rushes to the crash down site, which could have been anywhere on Earth, but luckily seems to be within walking distance, and the Hulk emerges none too happy and raging about killing Rick. Rick commands him to stop, and he does. The Hulk and Rick are now mentally linked. There's not really a lot else to say about this story. Rick being mentally linked to an even more bestial Hulk that can suddenly fly is less satisfying than one may think. We're only three issues in and Stan seems to be changing the status quo of the book, already implying he didn't really have much faith in it to begin with. Two of the three issues have been straight science fiction tales rather than horror, and I feel this was the main problem of this issue. The Hulk doesn't need shoehorning into science fiction when he's better suited to horror, at least in these early days. Finding situations for him to be heroic is also proving a problem, when in every other scene he wants to crush his Rick's head like a grape. The Hulk now talks in short bursts rather than the sentences he was capable of putting together in the first issues. This link to Rick makes one wonder if the plan was to keep Banner as the Hulk and fade out the transformation angle, which seems ridiculous because, as I've already pointed out, this makes him like the Thing. The third story in this issue is The Ringmaster, and it's every Ringmaster story you've ever read. He and his circus of crime rock up in a small town, hypnotise everyone and rob them blind. Then they leave. This time they hypnotise Rick and he sets the Hulk on them. It's fine, but it's rather routine and feels like a poor episode of the TV show. Notable from an artistic point of view is that the Hulk is already changing and evolving. There's less of a Frankenstein's monster vibe to him now and more of a lumbering Neanderthal. Issue 4 is two stories, The Monster and the Machine and Mongu, Gladiator from Outer Space. The cover is particularly bland, unfortunately. The first story opens with General Ross trying out the Iceberg Rocket, a new missile that will engulf the Hulk in a solid cake of ice. The fact that Ross took the time to build a life-size jet-powered Hulk to try it out on is amusing to me for some reason. Anyway, Betty tries to convince her father that Rick Jones is the key to Banner and the Hulk, and General Ross acts like this is a startlingly original observation, despite figuring it out for himself last issue. The troops head over to Banner's apartment to locate Jones, and he orders the Hulk to f*** off. As the Hulk flies slash leaps, Stan can't make his mind up, he decides to become Superman for a moment, swoops down and pushes a school bus off a train track. I don't know about you, lovely listener, but looking at this sequence of panels, I'm coming down on the side of flying. The Hulk follows Rick's thoughts thanks to the telepathic link, and he saves Rick from the military. This is actually played more for laughs than anything, and rather goofy laughs at that. I didn't really get why the Hulk would save a bunch of school kids other than Stan is trying to make a hero out of him, and I really don't get why Stan keeps flatly contradicting the art by saying the Hulk is jumping when he's clearly flying. There's an interlude on the set of a monster movie that isn't without its charm, where this is a lot of padding without any plot. Ten pages in, something of import finally happens, as Rick and the Hulk alight at a different lab. Ten pages in, something of import finally happens. Rick and the Hulk alight at a hidden lab Bruce has made to help him deal with his problem. This appears to be a different set of caves from previously. Banner has a lot of equipment here that Rick doesn't understand, but he's going to pretend he can read Banner's notes and attempts to shoot up the Hulk with his third lot of gamma rays to get him to revert back to Banner. 
Rick screws it up, though, and although the Hulk reverts to Banner, it is a wheelchair-bound, weakened Bruce Banner. Banner hits upon an idea. He faffs around with the controls and bathes himself in yet more gamma rays, this time giving the Hulk Banner's brain. It's a more savage Banner, though, cruel and malicious. On the positive side, he's no longer Rick's puppet, so that's good. Still, even though the Hulk saves a family from burning to death in a fire, the ingrates still fear him. So he runs off back to the cave, a cave replete with electricity, a fully stocked bookshelf and a phone. He then reverts back to Banner. Banner fears that the Hulk is still a raging beast, but tired out by the events of the day, he falls into a fitful sleep. Despite the padding, and despite that this is issue 4 and Stan has changed the basic premise of the book again, this was far more interesting than the Tales to Astonish style science fiction stories of the last few issues. We're back to doing stories about the Hulk and Banner rather than adventure stories where the Hulk is incidental to the proceedings. It makes sense that Banner would try different ways to rid himself of the Hulk, be that controlling the creature or curing himself. And whilst this does feel like Stan struggling a little bit with what to do, it makes sense and gives the strips emergency. At least Stan and Jack weren't just coasting. They were trying to make the Hulk a good strip. The next issue blends the two main themes that Stan and Jack seem to be bringing to the Hulk, science fiction and commies. When the space gladiator Mongu arrives on Earth, he demands to fight Earth's mightiest mortal for the honour of deciding if Earth is ripe for conquest. This hand-to-hand combat thing will show if Earth is invaded, if Mongu wins, or left alone if Earth's champion wins. If you saw the second season finale of Supergirl, it's pretty much the same deal. However, when the Hulk agrees to the fight and arrives at the staging area, the Grand Canyon, he's surprised to learn that Mongu is a fake and this is all a plan by the Russians to kidnap the Hulk, study him and make an army of rusky Hulks. There's a charming naivete to all this silliness, but make no mistake, this plot is silly. Mongu is a giant exoskeleton, which shows the Russians aren't any slouch in the tech department. His spaceship is a disguised MiG, and the Russian army apparently invaded the USA in a helicopter that sailed across enemy lines apparently unmolested. The Hulk and Rick charter a jet that they can apparently fly, and this all leads to a rather anticlimactic fight where the Hulk deposits all the Russians back in their chopper and lets them go. This leads to the Hulk being believed to have perpetrated this magnificent hoax and being blamed for it, the public thinking the Hulk is trying to curry favour. It's not a story that stands up to too much scrutiny, and there's a feeling that Stan and Jack are losing their way with the character. Whilst the idea that Banner can control the Hulk is an interesting one, especially the notion that he is losing that control, here it feels like it's been added without any thought as to where it's going. The addition of the idea that Banner can now control the transformations is again not without merit, but it takes away from the root core of the character that Banner cannot control what happens to him. That's where the horror of the character comes from. It's at the heart of the tragic nature of Bruce Banner. Issue 5 opens far more promisingly. Entitled Beauty and the Beast and boasting a pretty great cover, the story starts with General Ross having a clip show about all the times that pesky Hulk got away from him. He says the government has given him carte blanche to capture the creature, and this means using Banner as his scientific advisor. After Banner leaves, Ross confides to Betty that he doesn't trust the secretive and tight-lipped Banner, which is odd given that he is also a man in charge of secrets. Betty reminds her father, for benefit of the audience, no doubt, that Banner is secretive due to the nature of his job. He's in charge of top-secret weapon systems. Now this is an idea worth following up on. If you need to have all these communist storylines, make them go after Banner for the secrets in his head. This is far more interesting than trying to capture the Hulk. 
After this rather interesting opening, we are introduced to Tyrannus, the bad guy of the story. Tyrannus was banished underground by Merlin the Magician, but has found a society of mole men who worship him in addition to being scientific geniuses. Tyrannus has maintained his looks as he has discovered what Ponce de Leon only dreamed of, the Fountain of Youth, located deep underground in a series of caverns. We need to pause yet again here to unpack all of these references that Stan is throwing at us. Tyrannus refers to tyrannical, obviously, but there was a Tyrannus in the Bible. It's also the name of a man that reigns and a philosopher, according to the big book of baby names. Merlin the Magician was King Arthur's mentor in the Camelot story set in the 6th century, which could give some indication of how long Tyrannus has been locked underground. Tyrannus, though, was the garb of a Roman nobleman rather than the more historically accurate Anglo-Saxon, and the 6th century is post-Roman England rather than under Roman rule. But given that Stan has thrown in a reference to the Bible, Spanish conquistador Ponce de Leon and his Fountain of Youth, and Camelot, we'll forgive him. Incidentally, according to legend, Ponce de Leon founded Florida, so if this is the Fountain of Youth that Tyrannus has found, then de Leon was searching in the wrong place. Tyrannus has decided that now is the time he can ascend from his banishment. Don't ask why. But he's terrified of America's atomic weapons, for some reason. And he needs Betty Ross to help him because she loves Bruce Banner. And that's how he will conquer the surface world. Again, what? This is where the story stops being interesting. becomes a mishmash of ideas thrown together to make incident pile upon incident. Tyrannus cons Betty into joining him underground. Bruce and Rick follow. Tyrannus makes the Hulk his slave and forces him to fight in gladiatorial combat. The Hulk, looking natty in his gladiatorial garb, wins. And then Tyrannus makes him perform labours to ensure the safety of Betty. There's some fun to be had from the gladiatorial combat scenes. And the Hulk losing his shit in the arena is entertaining. But there's no real reason for the labours scene other than to conjure up images of the labours of Hercules. Which Stan does. So at least there's a lot of literary merit to this. Kids are learning an awful lot from this 11-page story. Tyrannus has forgotten about Rick, which is understandable, who sets about freeing Betty. But this done, the Hulk smashes out of his cell and traps Tyrannus underground forever. Betty conveniently forgets everything that happened. Here we have another 11-page story that has some interesting ideas that just aren't fully explored and some good visuals that don't get the attention they deserve. It's interesting that two of the most popular Hulk stories of recent years, Planet Hulk and World War Hulk, Take ideas from this run, shooting the Hulk into space and making him a gladiator, and extrapolate upon those ideas, giving them room to breathe, showing that Stan and Jack had the right ideas but then chose not to follow up on them for whatever reason. The two stories per issue format isn't helping either. This feels like the anthology science fiction books of the early 60s and isn't finding its own feet. The second story, The Hordes of General Fang, is absolutely crazy, but you can't help but love the batshit lunacy of it all. The opening follows the traditional start to these stories. General Ross tries to bring the Hulk down with the iceberg missile from issue 4 but fails. Later, a mad Asian warlord named General Fang is stirring up trouble with his armies and is planning to invade a peaceful principality where the pacifist population are led by the High Lama. Banner hears all this on the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, and deciding that because Fang sneers at warnings, threats and sanctions, he changes the Hulk because brute force is all Fang understands. Rick and he then read a book on myths and legends and take a plane to the Orient. Yes, the Incredible Hulk hangs around in the departure lounge drinking overpriced coffee, then boards a plane like a regular passenger. I 
presume he has a passport in the Hulk's name and he paid for it with a Hulk credit card. The Hulk is exposed when a cabin crew member spills coffee on him and the Hulk and Rick simply leave the plane through an emergency exit because that is exactly how flight works. The Hulk and Rick then fly slash leap to Fang's country and the Hulk disguises himself as the abominable snowman. I am not making this up, lovely listener. The Incredible Hulk puts a white fluffy suit on and cosplays as a fearsome creature. Because, apparently, the Hulk isn't scurry enough. The Hulk then systematically goes about destroying Fang's armies before depositing Fang on American soil for the army to capture. On the one hand, this ridiculous wish-fulfillment romp is magnificent fun. The Hulk having Banner's brain leads to a Hulk that plans things out instead of just smashing stuff, although there is plenty of smash to go around. The army constantly harassing the Hulk and Banner's fear of the Hulk taking control is all good grist for the story mill. And who would have thought that in 2017, seeing the Hulk just barge into a small Asian country ruled by a small man with delusions of grandeur and smashing his armies to pieces would be such a joy. On the other hand, though, this can be read as the West imposing their will on the East. Our way is right, your way is wrong. Here, let's show you how it's done. This is a dangerous attitude and one that can lead to resentment. To give Stan credit, he shows that not everyone in the East is evil, but it's interesting to look at how Stan's politics changed throughout the duration of the 1960s. And to everyone who says, keep your politics out of my superheroes, where do we start with that? This is an incredibly simplistic storyline. I am no way suggesting that it should be taken at all seriously. Hulk dresses up as the abominable snowman, for God's sake, but... It is undeniably political. Stan and Jack injected a lot of political issues into their stories throughout the 60s in all of their work. So to say keep your politics out of my superheroes is to completely ignore the history of Marvel Comics. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic, lovely listener. Anyway, the final issue of The Incredible Hulk, issue number 6, has a changing creative team and format. Steve Ditko takes over as artist and presumably plotter, and the story is a full 24 pages rather than broke down into chapters or separate stories. The Incredible Hulk vs. the Metal Master is yet another alien invasion tale. In this rehash of stories told, the Metal Master is from the planet Astra, and he alone wishes to use the Astrans' incredible abilities to manipulate metal for conquest. To that end, he left Astra and has searched the galaxy for a planet ripe for the taking and found Earth. Banner decides that the Hulk can stop the Metal Master, but he's got a problem. On his latest transformation, his body is green and muscle-bound, but his face is still that of Dr. Banner. Fortunately, Banner has been making masks of the Hulk and donned such a mask to pop off to fight the Metal Master. When the Hulk posed for this mask is not explained. The Hulk is initially defeated, but thanks to Rick Jones' new hobby, Ham Radio, he forms the Teen Brigade, who all come together and assist the Hulk in tricking the Metal Master to leave Earth. We are firmly in the land of too many good ideas not being thought through again. Which is not to say that there isn't the first year of dumb ideas as well. What really was the point of the Hulk mask? It's there, and then when the Hulk is caught and unmasked, underneath his face is changed to that of the Hulk without explanation. There's a good story to be told of having Banner trapped in mid-transformation, but here it's a throwaway gag with no follow-up. 
The idea of Banner losing control of the Hulk is also provocative, especially after he gains some semblance of a balance between the two, but we haven't had long enough of Banner undergoing the transformations against his will. The moment Banner made the machine that could change him into the Hulk and back, the strip lost all cohesiveness. Why bother becoming the Hulk ever again? Rick Jones is irritating enough on his own, so why give him a team of teen sidekicks? Stan is on record as loathing kid sidekicks, so why saddle the Hulk with loads of them? And if it seems I'm giving the Metal Master part of the story short shrift, well, it's because it's boring. Banner and Betty's finally admitting their feelings for each other, Banner's constant fear of what the power of the Hulk will wrought, the Hulk's hatred of mankind is hounding by Roth. This is what we want to see. It's what makes this book different from the other Marvel titles. A series where the protagonist is as much a bad guy as good. These tedious alien invasion storylines are becoming a bore. The ending is particularly bleak, as Ditko would do on Spider-Man. He adds pathos to the strip, with a scene where Banner's machine seems to fail in returning the Hulk back to Banner. It's merely a delayed reaction, but this gives Banner pause for thought in ever bringing the Hulk back. Betty and Banner later take a moonlight stroll, where Banner wonders if the Hulk has gone forever. And of course he may have done. As I mentioned, in its original incarnation, The Incredible Hulk was a failure, and issue 6 was its last. Over the years, Stan has played down the cancellation of The Hulk, saying it wasn't because the book wasn't popular, but because he and the Marvel creative forces had too much other work on. I personally think this is the usual Stan spin. If the book had been successful, Marvel would have carried on publishing it, it's as simple as that. I think the non-direction of the book, the idea of an outright ambiguous character as the central figure, and the lack of a real supporting cast all hurt this title. With the cancellation of his own series, the Hulk would bounce around the Marvel Universe, appearing in The Avengers, Tales of Suspense, The Fantastic Four, and The Amazing Spider-Man, before finally getting his own strip again in Tales to Astonish. But those are stories for another time. Are you ready for some Star Trek? Are you ready to smile? Let them entertain you tonight. Star Trek entertains you. Star Trek entertains you. Star Trek The Next Generation was my life as a kid. It was my everything. It was my friends, my drama, my relationship to how I should conduct myself. It was the escape from reality and all the good stories. Star Trek The Next Generation was a show that everybody I interacted with seriously as a kid knew. My parents knew this show, my teachers knew this show, my friends knew this show. Star Trek The Next Generation was truly a community to me. It ran from when I was 5 to when I was 12. Can you believe it's been 30 years Star Trek The Next Generation first aired? 30 years? No kidding. What a coincidence. You know, I got a great idea. What's that, Sasha? Why don't we release a watch-along episode with each concurrent release date of the anniversary of that episode? That would be amazing. We could talk about what the episodes mean to us, make a few jokes, and sing a few songs. Make sure to catch Sasha and Patrick's debut episode of Next Generation's First Generation on September 28th released on iTunes, Libsyn, or early release on Facebook on our page entitled Next Generation's First Generation Podcast or do the quick search of Next Gen First Gen. 
or you could email us at nextgenfirstgenpod at gmail.com. And we're back to rummage around in my massive sack and see what I can pull free. The email this week comes from Trentus Magnus of this here parish. Trentus does Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, an absolutely fine show with a wonderfully askew view of things that I absolutely adore. It's lovely to hear from Trentus. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Trentus. The Superboy series really puts a lot of things into perspective. It was cheesy as f***, but it does, or at least it should, redeem Ilya Sulkind in the minds of fans. He's regarded by a lot of Superman fandom as a moustache-twirling villain. And to be fair, the man has a moustache, so there's that. But the Superboy show became more creatively successful as Elias Alkin became more and more involved with it. The resonance the show had with Superboy comics should be enough for people to re-evaluate Salkin as a creative force in Superman lore. Deep down inside, you know I'm right. Just admit it, Mr Leyland. Yours in Superboy TV show cheesiness, Magnus. Well, yes, you are absolutely right. I think Elias Alkind, by his own admittance, uh, and as I mentioned in that show, didn't have a clue about TV production. It was the first TV show he'd ever worked on. And it's a testament to the man that he was willing to make the changes necessary as he learned what he was doing to make the show better. And um, again, as I mentioned, I think he made every single change in that show that other shows have done. And they've crashed and burned. He changed the cast. He changed the production personnel. He changed the status quo of the show. He changed the writing staff. He brought in more comic book writers. And in, in every other show where that's ever been done, where they've changed the focus of the show, changed the premise, changed the writers, whatever, it's been an abject failure. And yet in Superboy, the show just got better and better. Seasons three and four are highly recommended and very, very enjoyable slices of superhero television. Uh, thank you for emailing in. It was, uh, it was a pleasant surprise and much appreciated. So thank you for that. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, if you want to drop by 2TrueFreaks.com, and go through the Amazon link when you're buying stuff off of Amazon. That gives us the kickback that enables us to keep the lights on. If you wish to drop me a line, as Trentus did, the email address is my old heykidscomics at virginmedia.com email that you can send me your thoughts. And next time, I do actually have a plan. I'm going to continue this incredible Hulk retrospective, which has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that the Hulk is about to appear in Thor Ragnarok at all. Ooh, no. This is what we like to call corporate synergy, lovely listeners. Uh, and Michael Bailey will be dropping by the palace to chat all over the reunion movie, The Incredible Hulk Returns. And the fact that that movie also features Thor at a time when a movie featuring Thor and the Hulk is about to come out is, again, magnificent example of corporate synergy. Hope you'll enjoy, hope you'll enjoy me. I hope you enjoy me immensely. I hope you will join me for that. I'm very much looking forward to it. It's not being recorded as of this recording. Uh, and we'll see you next time for another delve through the corridors of the Palace of Glittering Delights. I have been Andrew Leyland. Good night.